We're in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. We'll start with reading this particular verse, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. It says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Father God in heaven, as we meet in this house today, Lord, we come as humbly as we know how, Lord, realizing that before you we have no right or merit by which we can come, except that it be by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has given himself on Calvary. Lord, we know that there is no inherent righteousness in ourselves, and that we must look to your Son with all faith and with all trust, knowing that his sacrifice is sufficient. And as we do come in this manner, Lord, we just ask that you would receive our worship this morning and our praise, Lord, that you would hear our prayers for those who are sick, Lord, for the spiritual needs of the people in this congregation, Lord, for the individual spiritual needs that each and every one of us has, or the need to recognize our sin and the need to seek the cross. Lord, as we pray for these things, we pray that the text speaks to us today about your Son, Jesus Christ, about the marvelous wonders of his glory, Lord, his exalted positions and his rule and authority over all of creation as he is the eternal God. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased by the power of your Spirit to reveal the truth of your Son to us in this word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The text again poses a question. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? We've seen throughout the epistle to the Hebrews from the very beginning that God is speaking of His Son, Jesus Christ. And in that we see this repetitive message of Jesus Christ as prophet, as priest, and as king. That God is explaining to His people through this text, given in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as to how we're to worship Christ, how He is worthy of worship, how He is God how He is supreme sacrifice. And so over and over again, we should remind ourselves of that reoccurring principle that occurs uh, from the very first verse even to the very end of the chapter. Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, exalted above all of creation. Jesus, exalted even above the angels. As I sit in the pew listening to Sean today, thinking about the text and about how it speaks of Christ and the exaltation that we should give to Christ and I thought about how many times when we think of someone who in our minds is better than the average person we have two statements especially in the south that we like to make he or she is an angel or he or she is a saint and I thought about that and I thought the reason that this text is given to the Hebrew people 
into the church today is because we have that view of, of perfectness, of righteousness, that we would call someone an angel or a saint. And I'm not saying that either one would be disgusting or bad to be one of those beings as we are saints. And it's a glorious title with a, uh, a great, I guess, understanding of who God is. But the text's purpose is to reveal to us how small would it be to be an angel and how small it is to be a saint in comparison to being the Almighty God, Creator, Son of God, Son of David, Sacrificial Lamb, who is Jesus Christ. And that's the point of the text, to remind us that as marvelous as some people think angels are and uh, as highly esteemed as we may call someone who is a saint, they're very disgusting in comparison to Christ. And the text reminds us of that this morning. And here is no different than what we've seen throughout this study. It begins with a rhetorical question that we saw earlier back in verse 5. To which of the angels has he ever said? That's the question that we get each time that God makes a statement about the Son. To which of the angels has he ever said? For the young people who may not understand what a rhetorical question is, a rhetorical question is a question that someone asks, but they don't really expect you to answer. It's a question that someone asks in order to make you think about the subject of the question. Its purpose is asking a question to make a point best illustration I could come up with and it's not very good is you know all of us has been in this have been in this position where we're doing something that's probably not the smartest thing we've ever done I had a pretty good one a couple weeks ago when I bashed my head with a, a post driver and I wish maybe Bethany would have been out there to ask me this question but this is sort of a rhetorical question when you're doing something crazy or doing something kind of foolish and someone says, you think that's a good idea? They're not really expecting you to answer. Of course, you would never go, you're right, that's a terrible idea because we're prideful. We would never say, no, this is the best way to do something, right? So it's always stated that way as a rhetorical question. Do you think that's a good idea? You know, James, do you think you should be on the top of that ladder? And it's a, it's a rhetorical question, much like what we see this morning. They aren't really expecting us to answer that question, but they're encouraging us to rethink our position. Be it on top of a ladder or being a, a spiritual position that we hold. But the idea is that a rhetorical question really isn't expecting an answer, but it's causing us to think, causing us to ponder, to recall to mind those things that you know to be true about whatever the subject is. Whether this, whether this activity is dangerous or rather the person that you're speaking of as we see in the text today, is it the exalted Christ or is it another Christ? Is it a false Christ? Is it a created being such as an angel or a saint? This is a worthy statement in consideration of verses 5 and 13 where we have this question, but to which of the angels has he ever said? The penman of the Hebrews, this particular epistle, 
is informing us by using God's rhetorical question about Christ, employing our minds, asking, but to whom else would God say these things? To whom else has God ever said such things or made such statements? Of course, the answer is to none. To no other has God the Father made such a statement as we've seen from verses 5 to 13. The Father would never say any words like this to a created being. For none are worthy of the exaltation and the honor and the glory ascribed to Christ in this particular chapter or to any other chapter as it refers to Christ. In his description, the father of the son, he describes one who is in a position of authority in regards to a kingdom that belongs only to him. Speaking of Christ. Interestingly enough, the next portion that we see says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a portion of text quoted directly from Psalm chapter 110. Getting at verse 1. And it says, sit at my right hand. I want to dissect this a little bit. Now I couldn't help but ask myself if God is speaking. And he's speaking uh, most certainly to us today through his word. As he describes how he speaks back in the first few verses. And if he's speaking, why would he do so? Why does he beg such a question? Sit at my right hand. To whom have I said these things? Why does he inspire such language by the power of his Holy Spirit to be written that men may know and that men may study it out as we will today? I think I came to this conclusion. First, it must be because the natural man knoweth not who Christ is. So he has to ask the question, of whom else can I be speaking when I say sit at my right hand. When I say that you're the radiance of my glory. The exact representation or imprint of my nature. Who could I be speaking of but the Christ? And he says that because men do not naturally understand who Christ is. Neither completely as man nor as God. For the natural man receiveth not the things that are of the Spirit things of God and the things pertaining to Christ and the attributes of Christ and the person of Christ are only comprehended by means of spiritual discernment. And so I believe that's the first point that the natural man knoweth not. Then secondly, I think by this statement, sit at my right hand, he is declaring the inability for any created being to be at a place of exaltation, a place of judgment, a throne, or even in the immediate presence of God. Consider that. Not even if we take it to its fullest extent that he's seated beside God the Father, but that he could even stand or sit in the presence of the Father. It tells us something about the, the divine nature of Christ. Think about it like this. The cults deny the full deity of Christ. Every cult denies the full deity of Christ. 
But God the Father rebukes them by this phrase, sit at my right hand. Only a king may sit in such a position. Only a prince. Only royalty. And since the kingdom is heaven, there is none able to enter lest he be God or lest the staff, the scepter be extended out to him. What good would it do for an angelic being to be seated here? Think about that. For to which of the angels did he say be seated at my right hand? What good would it do for an angel to be seated next to the Father? What good would it do for any created being to be seated here for that matter? Or anyone who is less than fully God? I admit it's just... It seems so trivial when you read over it that you would never think that. And because it's so simple that we know that it's speaking of Christ, we forget that the natural man doesn't understand these things. Not everyone, even in churches, understands that this is speaking only of Christ and that this Christ is God and is fully man. Truly God, truly man. And so we don't even get this far to ask ourselves the question, Why would God say this to an angelic being? An angelic being doesn't have the power to work in a place that he is not physically located. Think about that. Christ is doing a work on earth. Would anyone here deny that? Most certainly he's doing a work in each and every one of our lives. He's upholding everything in nature. Everything that is spiritual in a man. He's providing Every need that we had, fulfilling everything only by the word of his power. But yet when we consider an angel in the Bible, what angel could do such a work from heaven? Every time that we see an angel mentioned, don't they come to wherever the work is being needed? Don't they go to the place that God has directed them? For an angel is not omnipresent. And an angel wouldn't be seated in a place of authority and judgment. Nor would an angel be seated in a place where judgment is enacted. Why? Because we understand from the Bible certain things about angels. Look back at verse 6. He says, And let all the angels of God worship Him. It says that they worship the Lord. Verse 7, and the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels wins. The angels there are described as subservient creatures serving the one who is on the throne. They are created, and they were created by Christ. Angels, we must understand from this text, because it it displays for us the true nature of Christ, who He is, both in the flesh and as God. Angels are messengers. And if you're taking notes, uh, look to Genesis chapter 16, Genesis chapter 18, Judges chapter 6, Luke chapters 1 and 2, and Matthew chapter 28. Angels are guardians. So each time that we first see the angels as messengers, they aren't seated on a a place and speak. 
to those whom are to receive the message, but they must go and be present. And then we see that the angels are these uh, subservient creatures following the orders of God. Therefore, they're guardians. They're guardians of God's precious life, the church, those who belong to Him. Psalm chapter 34, verses 7. Then Psalm chapter 91. Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. All of these biblical texts to cite the position and the role of angels as guardians. And if you would like this, I'll be glad to provide it to you anytime this week. But then the third thing that we see is that these angels are ministers. How is an angel guarding? We even have this saying and we don't even realize it. You know, people say whatever, whatever about your guardian angel, that they're with you, that it's the idea, even though we use it so casually, the idea is that they must be in the place in which they're working. Therefore, they couldn't be seated on the throne and working for God at the same time. They couldn't be seated at his right hand. But then we see that angels are ministers, therefore they have to go. This is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, 1 Kings chapter 19, Luke chapter 22, verse 43, Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. And then we see again that they are executors of judgment. Genesis 19, 2 Kings 19, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Notice that the angels, any work that they do, they're sent. They must go to another place. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. That they would come to destroy the cities. They would physically enter the cities. And smoke those who were in them. And So it causes us to realize that to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand. It's absurd to think such about an angelic being. Therefore, it is absurd to think that anyone other than God Himself is seated at the right hand. It would be absurd to think that Christ is merely a man, merely a prophet, merely a priest, but God instead, in the person of Jesus Christ, is eternal. And that's why he's able to sit at the right hand. So we notice that the Father instructs one, being namely Jesus, the Christ, to be seated at his right hand. Because he is able to sit here, we must also recognize that he must, able to be, must be able to work from this position. This must mean that he has some truly supernatural power. Being God the Creator, that Christ is able to work from this position, from this seated right hand. He may do two things as we noticed, Jesus Christ. One, He is interceding, as we see from Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Let's turn there.
We'll start with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Very interesting. The described seated right hand position is first one who is intercessor. No one else. Only the Christ. The second point that I'll make is that he may work in the lives of mankind and upon earth and in the heavens. Those things that we saw that he will create new as he once created in the beginning. But where does he do his work from? He does it from the seated right hand. Why? Because Christ is not merely given authority, but because of his divine nature. It is inherent in him, this power to work. And it's not that he must be physically present, though he is. The truth is that by the power of his word may things be created. By the power of his word may God's will be enacted upon all of creation. He works this way in the lives of mankind. And an angel may not work as Christ simply by his verbal command from afar. But Christ may speak just as he did in creation and so it shall be done. No matter how distant this chasm may be or that it may seem, for Christ is always near. It's the seal of that spirit, the indwelling spirit that belongs to every Christian, to every one who has proclaimed and professed that Jesus Christ is Lord, who is submitting to his will, to everyone who is truly the saint that we spoke of earlier. He is present everywhere as God by the power, by the Spirit. No one else can speak from the throne and it be done as far away as earth or the heavens as we know them as we are looking to the sky. No angel can command lest he be in person for their power is limited by their created nature. And Christ may work as omnipresent God by the word of the power, this power. The right hand of God is not a place for those with limited power. A mere angel may only administer the decree that comes from one such authority seated in this heavenly place, the majestic right hand of prominence. So there we have it described for us, this position of the right hand of honor, power, authority, of judgment. And next we see, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, from Psalm chapter 110, the idea here is to perpetually God the Father to proclaim the sovereignty of Jesus because He is God. He is divine. Now the same text is quoted 
in Matthew chapter 22. Let's look there. This is, this is the focal point of the text today. As we look and see that it says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we won't, we won't understand what's really being said here until we look and see that this very same verse is not only in Psalm 110, but it's quoted in Matthew chapter 22. We'll see it several places. Looking to verse 44. The Lord say to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And then it says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Isn't that interesting? We're speaking here of the one whose enemies will be made a footstool. David calls him Lord, speaking of Christ. They say certainly David would not refer to his ancestry to come, his following lineage to be Lord, unless he's speaking of a divine supreme ruler, a divine God, a divine son, not only of David, but a son of God himself. The Messiah. So there we have that first instance of Psalm, Psalm 110 being stated or being quoted. And then look again just a few pages away to Mark chapter 12. We have it again. Verse 36. This is, of course, the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we see the same accounts often uh, from different perspectives. But Mark 12, verse 36, David said himself in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he a son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Notice these profound statements are made of Christ. Those which... The people couldn't understand because they thought David was speaking of his future lineage. But it wouldn't make sense that way. And so here it is being revealed in Christ the truth of this statement. And we ask, again we see the same thing in Luke chapter 20 verse 43, but then we ask why? Why is it being stated this way? Why? We as Christians affirm the superiority of Christ. The God-man, don't we? So it's kind of weird for us to say, why, why is it being stated this way? Why is it necessary? Yes, we do affirm it. Yes, we do embrace. And we as well uphold the truth that Christ is truly God and truly man. Fully God and fully man. But the irony of this statement, this Psalm 110 and its quotation in so many texts is that we must realize that Christians don't graduate from the gospel. This statement is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The saving message of Jesus Christ. And I'll, sh I'll soon show you. The angels will forever be only ministers of this truth. 
and the truths of salvation and to those whom it has been applied, that is their position, not to be seated in a place of authority. And so with the last reference before uh, the one that we have in our actual text, verse 13 in chapter 1 of Hebrews, we have in the Acts, and this is, the, I believe, the key to understanding what's being said in verse 13. Turn to Acts chapter 2 in verse 35. What is the purpose of God stating things the way that He does in the Hebrews about Jesus Christ? Asking this rhetorical question, but to which of the angels has He ever said? And then describing this place of authority, this right hand. And this is the key in Acts chapter 2. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but... He himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So the purpose of the statement quoted from Psalm 110 in verses 34 and 35 is the statement in 36, here, here it is. Because he said these things, therefore let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Speaking of Jesus, whom you crucified. Isn't that interesting? Therefore let all of the house of Israel know that all of these who claim to be God's people, who want to be heirs of this promise and then we read on it says now when they heard this they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do then Peter said unto them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are Far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men and as every man had a need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So when we make it to Hebrews chapter 13, without going back and studying the text of Scripture, we would miss this. What is God doing? He's telling us that Jesus Christ is deity. And not only is He doing that, but when we look back to Acts chapter 2, when this very same verse is quoted, we see that this is the message of the Gospel. 
Not speaking of David, but speaking of Jesus. Let all the house of Israel know. This is the message. Because He is seated at the right hand, because the enemies will be made His footstool, because their end is destruction, because this earth and the heavens will perish as we've seen in the previous passage. There is one who is able to save. And this is Jesus Christ. And he says, he goes further to describe, this is the message of the gospel. This is the same Jesus whom you have crucified. He is both Lord and Christ. How is that the gospel? That you have crucified Christ. Now this doesn't mean just directly that you were descendants, you were there, you saw the crucifixion, you let it happen. But it's the truth of sin in the life of men that the sins that we commit against a just and holy God have crucified Christ. To put it in perspective, Tim has crucified Christ. Charlie has crucified Christ. Sean has crucified Christ. Every man, woman, and child sitting in a pew this morning, everyone who is taking a breath of God's fresh air has crucified Christ. This is the message of the gospel. Sinful man needing reconciliation. And he says, therefore now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. The truth that the Holy Spirit is administering this crucifixion, this iniquity, showing us by the law what we've done to Christ, our transgressions against a just and holy God, and therefore He is being pleased to prick those whom He has called. It says to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and then brethren, men, what shall we do? And Peter tells the truth, the message of Christ. Because of Christ, you should repent and be baptized. Not that the water may do anything, but that the Holy Spirit is coming and setting as a seal the truth of Christ's application of the gospel to your life. Do this in the name of Christ for the remission of sins, that you shall be forgiven, that you shall stand justified before God. The truth of this being seated at the right hand, the enemies being a footstool, is that we must no longer be enemies if we're to be reconciled to God, but we must be a friend of Jesus. We must be a brother to Christ. We must be a fellow heir, a son of God as Christ is a son of God. Not saying that we are deity because we certainly are not. That would be taking the text out of context. But truly being an heir to his kingdom. It says, for this is the promise to you and your children and to all that are far off. That's us. That's those of Israel who are far off. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call the truth of God's sovereign election. That by the message of this Christ, he would reveal the truth and the nature of Christ. His ability to save. His sufficiency for salvation. His atoning blood shed on the cross. As many as He would call. This is why the Lord is tarried. This is why He is yet to come. Because men and women are yet to be saved. The called according to His purpose. Yet to understand the magnitude of salvation. Yet to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. says, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they gladly received 
John chapter 1, that as many as received him, to him gave thee the power to become sons or children of God who were called. They gladly received his word. Gladly receiving the word is gladly receiving the Savior, the Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who is that living word. They gladly received and they were baptized. They were obedient to the command to be baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. This isn't about numbers. It's about the one who is seated at the right hand and the power that he has. If we believed in an Arminian decisional making discipleship or salvation, the truth would be revealed to us in this chapter that no matter how good or how perfect the preaching would be, no one could save 3,000 souls. This is the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation. This is the truth of man's inability. This is the truth of total depravity. It's not about the numbers. It's just to show you how superior the one who is seated, the one who is at the right hand, the one who is not a created being. This chapter 1 verse 13 is the gospel. No one else could take this position. And notice after this, just as a, uh, a little bonus, what it says here. This should be a note for everyone seated in the pew, everyone who would leave here and call themselves a member of God's church, belonging to Christ. It says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That's a command to the church. That's a command to you and I that if we call ourselves Christian, if we truly are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and it be truly for the remission of sins that we will keep His commandments. That we won't simply pay lip service to Christ. And then this is the other beautiful part. It says, and fear came upon every soul. Do we fear God? Does the statement in Hebrews chapter 1 of the enemies becoming a footstool, does it scare us? Is it a healthy fear of God, understanding that if we are not friends of God, then we are enemies of God. We're at enmity with God. That He will trample us underfoot. That we will be destroyed. That we shall have no inheritance in the greatest kingdom that will ever be that we shall have truly no righteousness without Christ. And then it just keeps getting better. They feared. They saw signs and wonders. Notice that the signs and wonders are at the end of the sentence. It wasn't the the focal point of the Scripture. It's just letting you know that they saw it. And the truth is that we don't seek after signs and wonders But if you belong to Christ, you see the wonders of Christ. You see the miracles of Christ. You see the works of Christ, the works that are being done from a place that seems so afar to us, this right hand. And it says they sold their possessions 
and their goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Christ comes to serve. We're called to live and to same, have the same mind, the same attitude as Christ. I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, one of my favorite verses. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. The truth is revealed there that anyone who is in Christ is a new creature and that these people would sell their possessions and goods to provide for every need because they truly were preaching a biblical Christ and were living a biblical life devoted to Christ in which they became servants to one another. Servants for the sake of the king. Servants for the sake of the kingdom. And they continued daily. They continued daily, united in Christ, one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They did eat their meat with gladness. They were satisfied with Christ. It says that they went on praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Such as should be saved. If we take a biblical perspective from man's point of view, none should be saved. But the truth is that the one who is seated is God. The person of Jesus Christ. And he works to enact the will of the Father. And we don't get to decide who's saved or who should be saved. Because the truth was, as Sean said this morning, if we compared ourselves to anyone other than Christ, we would say no one deserves saving. But the truth is that the text says, as should be saved. What does that mean? It means that God has declared who should be saved. The one who has declared the beginning from the end the one who has purchased sinners by his blood. This is the Christ that we serve. This is the gospel that we should see hidden there. A mystery to the outside world. A mystery to the natural man. When it says, sit at my right hand. This is describing the Christ. Mate, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The certain death and destruction that we faced without him. And that as we see in Acts chapter 2, that many shall be saved according to the will of God. And none shall be saved apart from the will of God. Apart from the provision of God in Christ. As we read this text, we realize that it couldn't be speaking merely of David. But speaking of a son who is eternal, a son who is conceived by the Spirit of God, one God, three persons. We don't have to make him, as it said in Acts chapter 2, verse 35, that he was 
Lord and Christ, Master, Savior. He is Master and Savior. We must bend the knee and profess and live out as those in Acts chapter 2 did. If we would be glad to call Christ our Savior. If we truly find joy in the salvation provided in Christ, then we must become as servants. And we must be reminded every day of the gospel message. And that's what is being presented to us uh, most certainly from the very beginning to the end of Hebrews chapter 1. That Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Christ alone is able to be seated. Christ alone is the Son of God. He alone is the radiance of His glory. He alone is the exact imprint of His nature. And He alone has made purification for sins. Let's go to the Lord. Fathers, we come before You, Lord. We thank You that, uh, Lord, we have this library of books, this collection of documents, Lord. It tells us everything that we must know. It tells us the truth of who you are and who your son is and what he's done on the cross. It reveals to us the nature from which we must be delivered. And God, as we read this text, Lord, we must ask for forgiveness because we don't understand and we live in a generation, Lord, where we could do a word study with the simple stroke of a finger. And Lord, we fail to study our Bibles as we as we should, and we fail to commune with Christ as we should. Lord, this day let us be reminded by this statement in verse thirteen. Let us be uplifted by what we see in Acts chapter 2. Lord, let your Holy Spirit light under us a fire to serve you as we should, to love you as we should, to recognize that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your provision and for your great mercy and your long-suffering to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.